thankful to be in church this morning? Are you thankful to be in church this morning? That's good. I am thankful for a lot of things this morning. I am thankful that in the, the, the great providence and, and the, the wisdom of the church tradition that we don't have a Sunday on the books called Baseball Bat Sunday. Because uh, what we just saw with the kids this morning would have gone totally differently um, if we would have had something called Baseball Bat Sunday. So this is very good. I, I think that, you know, sometimes they say, oh, the title of pastor has been bestowed on you. The title of target was bestowed on me down here. It was like, oh, hey, here's a sucker. Let's get him. So if you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to John's Gospel. Chapter 12, over the last few weeks, we have been in John's Gospel looking at what it might mean for us to be a church together that not only can see the new ways that God is redeeming this creation, but also, like Pastor Shauna talked to us about last week, be a church that turns its face toward the wind and breathes deeply of the Spirit. Okay, That's the things that we're, we're looking at this morning. And so this morning um, also marks kind of an interesting time in the life of the church. It's a time in the the church calendar where we live in this tension between life and death. It's a time when we turn our face with Jesus toward Jerusalem, toward the cross, and we begin to live between life and death, or we begin to live between crucifixion and resurrection. This Friday, Sean has already mentioned this, but at 7 o'clock, we invite each and every one of you to come back and experience the crucifixion. Not really. I mean, it's okay. I'll I'll say that right now. Don't worry. We're going to leave our hammer and nails at home. It's going to be all right. But uh, there is no way that we can be a people of resurrection until we have become a people of crucifixion. We're going to be talking a little bit about that this morning. So at 7 o'clock on Friday night, I'd invite you all to come back and join us. John's Gospel, chapter 12. We're going to begin reading at verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he, was called, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This morning, we're going to dig a little bit more into, uh, into John, what John has laid out here in terms of, of Palm Sunday. But the first thing I want us to draw our attention to, well, actually before that, man, I'm going to give you a bonus this morning. This is so good. This is totally free. This is amazing. But you have to see this. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first words in John's gospel. The first words were in the beginning. And that reminds us of what? It reminds us of Genesis. Way to go. That's why you're an outstanding youth group member. It reminds us of Genesis, the first words in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the writer of Genesis goes through this whole thing of the next day, God did this. The next day, God did this. The next day, God did this. Well, guess what? John does something similar because there's no mistake. When we see the first words in John's gospel be in the beginning, it's supposed to remind us of Genesis. And then John hides all these Easter eggs all the way throughout his gospel. All these passages that start with the next day. It's kind of like, Oh, hey, guess what? Remember the thing that God was doing back then? Well, it's a serial creator and a serial redeemer, and he's going to do something big even now. And so our passage this morning 
starts with this. This is so cool. You, do, you don't seem impressed by this, but this is so cool. Um, our passage this morning begins with the next day. This signals to us right away that something big is about to happen. That that serial creation, that serial redemption is about to take place again. We're going to get a little bit of a snapshot of this in this passage. The next day, that signals something really big is, is going to go on. But there's something else that I want us to look at this morning, and that is the crowd. The crowd that ran out to meet, to meet Jesus as he was entering Jerusalem. The crowd who had been there with Jesus, who had seen Jesus call Lazarus out of the tomb, and resurrect Lazarus from the dead. This is a crowd who had been an observer to resurrection. They had been a witness to new life. And I think that if there was any question that I would like to put before us this morning, it would be, are we like this crowd? Or are we, I guess the way I want to say this is, could we possibly be content to be like the crowd, to be observers of resurrection? Those people who see resurrection happen at a distance, who kind of stand off to the side and go, wow, wasn't that cool? Because make no mistake about it, this was the same crowd who was super excited that Jesus was here. Why? John tells us because he was doing all these really cool things. He's like feeding people and resurrecting people from the dead, like we're saying about Jesus turns water into wine. I mean, he's doing all these incredible things, and so there's no mistake that Jesus has done some pretty exciting things. And yet I wonder if this is the kind of a crowd who would be content to observe resurrection from a distance. They would be satisfied with watching new life break in from a distance, or is this the kind of a crowd that would say, I am not content to watch resurrection. I want to experience it for myself. In other words, I don't want to just stand off to the sidelines here and watch Jesus bring new life to other people. I want to experience that new life for myself. I want to stand in the middle of that resurrection. And so if there's any question that I want to hang over the sermon this morning, it is as are we as a church, a church, a people who will be content to watch resurrection take place at a distance, or are we the people who desire resurrection to break out in our midst, to experience new life that happens right here? Man, you don't seem excited about this either, but I think we really ought to be. 915 services, man, I don't know about this. Are we the kind of a people who are okay with seeing the way that God is bringing new life to, 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 to work in Bakersfield? I mean, yes, there's those times when we look around and we go, man, did you see that incredible thing that God did over there at that church in that neighborhood? Or are we going to be the kind of people who do anything that we can to welcome Christ into our midst to say, I don't just want to observe new life and new resurrection. I want to experience it here for ourselves. That's, thank you. Oh, Good. That is such a good place for an amen. I'm glad you're with me on that. Um, some of you may know that we have one bumper sticker on the back of our car. I don't like bumper stickers because it lets everyone on the road know a little bit too much about me. In other words, I'm never going to put like a pastor bumper sticker because honestly, I can't get away with much on the road if I'm doing something like that. You know, if I've got a bumper sticker, uh, you know, I, I can get away with a lot more in traffic. Uh, you know. If, based upon what bumper stickers I have. But we only have one bumper sticker on our car, and it's just numbers. I like to keep it nice and ambiguous, okay? It doesn't have any words on it at all. It just has numbers. This is 26.2. Now, for those on the inside, those who know what 26.2 is, you know what it is, and I don't have to explain it to you this morning. But for those who may not know what 26.2 is, well, just allow me to enlighten you a little bit, because it's definitely an insider's club and an outsider's club. As we were making our way across country from Chicago to Bakersfield, we actually had a couple people mention it to us. I overheard a couple people talking about the bumper sticker. 
Uh, some people, poor, sad, outside people, said, 26.2, what does that mean? Is that like a radio station? Are you ham radio operators? What's going on here? Is it, you know, what does this have to do with anything? And I, I thought, oh, you sad, poor, oh, let, allow me to enlighten you just a little bit here. And then we had people who were definitely on the inside. We'd stopped in Colorado in the middle of the Rockies. We just wanted to grab a cup of coffee, walk the dog, and honestly just take in the grandeur of the Rocky Mountains. And so we're out at this in this parking lot next, near this coffee shop, and we'd been walking the dog around, looking at the mountains. We're getting back in the car to hit the road again, and another car pulls up next to us, and it's got this whole family inside. There's these kids, and their mom is helping them get out, and she goes, oh, look, honey. She looks at our sticker, 26.2, and she goes, marathoners. And I'm like, oh, one on the inside, because 26.2 is the exact mileage of a marathon. If you've ever run a marathon, you know that 26.2, you're going to stop running at 26.2. That's the exact exact limit of a marathon. And so I kind of had all this, oh, wow, I'm on the inside. I know what 26.2 means because it's just kind of like this bat signal, like, hey, did you run one? Me too. Yeah, I'm on the inside. We know each other, that kind of a thing. If you don't know, hey, it's all right. You know, maybe one of these days you'll, you'll be on the inside. And so I kind of had this little pride swell up in me, like, oh, yeah, she called us marathoners. And then it dawned on me, I've never run a marathon before. <laughs> <laughs> Some of you may know that two years ago, Shauna ran the Chicago Marathon, and she did a great job. And I did this, this thing called observation, or cheering on. So I went with Shauna, and I sat on the sidelines. And let me tell you, I did a phenomenal job of this. I had the, 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 the course all mapped out, and I said, okay, well, I can intercept her here, and I can intercept her here, and I can intercept her here, and I have my camera, I was going to take some pictures. Let me tell you, it's not easy at all to find one person amongst 40,000 other suckers, I mean runners, who, um, who are running the Chicago Marathon. You know, it's, there's this, because my friends would tell me, you've got to run this marathon. It's like the, the glory of grandeur and human achievement and the height of athleticism. Let me tell you, all of that grandeur goes out the window on race day. I, every disgusting thing that you can see the human body do, I saw it on race day that day. <laughs> there was nothing glorious about the marathon that day. I'm just, I'll be totally honest. I'll save you the details. If you want those, talk to me later over lunch. <laughs> but I realized that when it comes to the marathon, I was super content to just sit on the sideline and watch the race go by. That's exactly how I'd love to see it happen. I was content to take my pictures and, and cheer people on and go, wow, wasn't that an incredible marathon experience? Except for the fact that I'd never actually experienced the marathon, only Shauna had. And so she was the only one who could actually really speak to that experience. And so I wonder this morning, are we the kind of a church, are we the kind of a people who are content to sit on the sidelines and watch resurrection go by, or are we the kind of people who say, no, I'm getting in the race. I desire for this experience to break out in our midst. I am not content to sit on the sidelines. There's more. We're going to continue reading a little bit this morning. As we ask ourselves the question of, what might it look like for us to be a church who gets in the race? What does it look like for us as a people to truly experience new life in our midst rather than simply be content to watch it break out other places? Verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn toward Jesus. And Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And let me stop us there. I'm going to stop here just for a minute because this is super good news. All through John's gospel, the disciples have been waiting to hear these words. This time has finally come. 
all throughout the gospel so far, all Jesus ever says to them is, my time is not yet come. My time is not yet come. He would do these things like feed thousands of people, and then the people, like in John 6, actually come to physically install him. They're, they're actually going to take him by force and install him on the throne in Jerusalem. And what does Jesus say? Uh, my time is not yet come. My time is not yet come. And so when he finally says these words to Philip and Andrew, Philip and Andrew, I'm like, I could imagine, are probably going, yeah! It's time, it's time, it's time, it's time. The time is here. And remember, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about what their expectations were probably looking like for Jesus. Not that Jesus would just be this nice guy who kind of comes in and shakes some hands and, hey, how you doing? It's good to see you. But that Jesus would be the Messiah who comes down to rain down fire on the Roman government to, to kick out this oppressive government who had been ruling over the Jews and to finally install a Jewish king on the throne in Jerusalem. Make no mistake, the temple was the highest point in Jerusalem. When Jesus talks about being lifted up, when Jesus talks about being glorified, when Jesus talks about being exalted and how his time has not yet come to be exalted, I bet the disciples are probably going, oh, come on, any day now, it's time to kick the Roman government out. We've got a king on the way. And so when they see him make this entrance into Jerusalem, people are waving palm branches, they're shouting Hosanna, they're talking about king kinds of things. Then the time has now drawn near, and finally Jesus says, it's time. Philip and Andrew, that's great. The time is here. We're getting a new king. This is going to be amazing. Jewish king on a Jewish throne. It's going to be fantastic. I'm sorry. I scared someone back there. I do that to my own son all the time. I understand. And then hear Jesus' words. This is where Jesus takes over. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Those who love their life will lose it, while those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. When Andrew and Philip come to Jesus, they probably had good news. Hey, Jesus, this is cool. Not only are all these Jewish people here recognizing this king, but we've also got some Greeks, too. And so the way that we begin to build a political movement is you get a lot of people to get behind you. You build all of these, this crowd, who, and you do incredible things, and they fall in love with you, and then you can go storm the capital, Jesus. That's going to be really good. So about all this dying business, could you just hang it up for a little while? Because that's not what a Messiah is supposed to do. You see, all through John's gospel, glorified, exalted, lifted up, Jesus has a double meaning there. All the disciples think this is the throne, this is what we're talking about. And what Jesus actually means is that he will be glorified. He will be lifted up on a cross like this. And his disciples stand around the cross and they finally realize, okay, so that's what he was talking about. You see, Jesus cannot be a resurrection Messiah, until he has been a crucifixion Messiah. And so I think the question that's facing us this morning is, as a people, if we desire to get in the race, if we desire not to simply stand on the sidelines and watch resurrection, if we desire to be the people who experience resurrection for ourselves, we must first be a people of crucifixion before we can become a people of resurrection. We must be a crucifixion church if we are going to be a resurrection church. Now, what does this mean for us? 
Well, I think in many ways that it calls us to begin to give ourselves away. If we look at what Jesus was saying here, he's asking himself, probably praying, asking himself, wrestling deeply with his own, within his own spirit what some of this means. Saying, should I call upon my Father to rescue me from this hour? No, that's not what I'm going to do. In other words, I'm going to lay myself down and I'm going to give myself away. I'm going to entrust my future to the Father. You see, I'm not totally convinced that Jesus totally knew that he was going to be resurrected. In other words, I think that there had to be this radical trust that Jesus was laying his life into the Father's hands and say, Father, do what you will. I don't know what's going to happen with this, but you do. I'm going to take my future and entrust it to the Father, and something miraculous, I trust, is going to come out of that. What does that mean for us? It means that we become a church of crucifixion, a church that gives itself away. Now, let me just get really honest with you this morning. This scares me to death as a pastor. Why? Because pastors love to build stuff, man. We love to, like, get big groups of people. We love to, like, see attendance numbers go up. And, and then once attendance numbers start to go up, then we see giving numbers go up. And then that means, hey, we can start, like, building new buildings and starting new ministries. And yes, we're always going to say, thanks be to God. Now, Father, glorify your name. But there's always going to be that little inkling in the back of our human minds that says, man, aren't you a good pastor because you did that? Look at this building project. Man, you built this building. This is great. You know, you must be a pretty darn good pastor if you're going to be able to get this building off the ground. Let me just say that this passage challenges me at that level. That I realize that we cannot be a resurrection church. In other words, we cannot see all the new life springing into our midst before we are a crucifixion church. A a church that gives itself away. Now, let me also say that, you know, uh, I'm Nazarene, baby. I have been for a long time, and I love being Nazarene. And for those of you who have been hanging around the Church of the Nazarene for a long time, you're going to get this. Now, for those of you who are just kind of like joining us, and, and you may not understand what this whole like Nazarene thing is, that's totally okay. Let me say this. Nazarenes love Jesus. They love Jesus. They are such good people. Hang around with us for a while, and I think you're going to be impressed. We're not, we're not a flashy people, but we love Jesus. We've been redeemed by his grace. That's who we Nazarenes are. But if you've been hanging around for, for uh, the Church of the Nazarene for a long time, you're going to realize that there's also this kind of Nazarene thing that we've got going on, which basically means that we're a little bit inbred, if, if you know what I'm saying. And what I mean by that is we all have this tendency to kind of marry each other, and we all kind of have this tendency to start knowing each other. And so we go to these conferences all the time, and it's like you're sitting there having a conversation, and people are walking past you like, hey, how you doing? Oh, yeah. Hey, and, and you can get together with probably anyone at that conference, and you can begin to, to uh, play what I call the Nazarene name game, where it's like, hey, where are you from? Okay, do you know so-and-so? Yeah. And there's, there's usually only about three degrees of separation before you are related to someone. Um, and now if you're new, don't let this scare you away. It's a really good thing. But, uh, when I was in college, there were a couple of students there, um, and they wrote this Nazarene rap song. One of my favorite lyrics from the rap song was talking about meeting a girl when you're at this, studying at this Nazarene university. And it's like, I asked her out. She said, yes, so I'm obviously elated, but we're both Nazarenes, so we're probably related. Um, <laughs> and there's truth to that with who we are. 
And so let me just say that this passage begins to make me a little nervous at the Nazarene level because I think in some ways that we cannot be a, a, a people of resurrection until we are people of crucifixion, a people that begins to lay, lay ourselves down, even laying down things that I love about being a Nazarene, like being able to identify everybody that I see. In other words, wouldn't it be amazing if the new life that broke out in our midst made it so that I couldn't identify anybody because there were so many new people coming into our midst? I mean, wouldn't that be incredible? Wouldn't it be amazing if I went to one of these Nazarene conferences and I didn't know anybody, and I've been a Nazarene my whole life, because guess what? We laid ourselves down. We laid down things that I love deeply, even like my Nazarene identity of getting to recognize everybody or knowing everybody there. So this makes me nervous at some level, but at the same time, I recognize that we as a people, if we are going to be a people of resurrection, must first be a people of crucifixion, must be a people who gives ourselves away and lays ourselves down. Now, I've got good news for us, though. Folks, Bakersfield first has a good history of this. A good history of this. Why? Well, because, you see, churches have this tendency sometimes. They've got this temptation to build stuff and to hang on to it really tight. If you grew up in a church like me, holy cow, they hung on tight to stuff. It was like we got this beautiful building, but we couldn't use it for anything because we're hanging on so tight to it. It's almost like you had policies on every door of the way everything was supposed to be. And hear me, we need to be good stewards of the things that God has given us. But what really encourages me is when I look at the history of this congregation in particular, and we do things like this. We build family life centers and gyms. And, and you know the temptation for churches is like, hang on to that super tight. Don't let anybody into that building. This is our building. We paid for this thing, and, or we're still paying for it. And, and we're, and we're going to hang on super tight and not let anybody. But guess what? Our church has this incredible way of saying, you know what? That's not the way that we are as a church. In fact, we're going to give this away. And we're going to invite kids to come and play basketball in here. And we're going to open this up to community groups. And guess what? Kids are going to come in here and they're going to do kid stuff. And they're going to be kids. And community groups are going to come in here and they're going to do community group kinds of things. And the good news is that once we've given that away, we can begin to make room for the new life that God wants to spring into our midst. We're getting into the game. We're getting into the race. Or we do things like this. Let's build Sunday school rooms all these educational wings. We're going to build these, these great educational wings and they're going to be our Sunday school classes and they're going to be exactly the way that we left them last Sunday and they're going to be set up just for our Sunday school classes. And guess what? That's the temptation that many churches have, but that's not the way that this church has operated. In fact, we've given them away. We've said, hey, you know what? Let's start a preschool here. And let's introduce kids to Jesus in these classrooms. Let's let this be a ministry to the community. And so as we begin to give these things away, God begins to be able to use those to bring new life into our midst. Oh, or, or we do things like have beautiful sanctuary and beautiful carpet, and we give kids palm branches, and we say, wave around! <laughs> a people who gives itself away. Friends, I, I truly believe that we are a church who wants to see resurrection in our midst. We are not content to see it pass us by. We want to get in the race, which means that we must give ourselves away. Let me say that scares me. It scares me. I don't know what that looks like, but I do hear Jesus' words. I will entrust my future into the Father's hands. I will give myself away, trusting that God has a plan for all of this so that God can take it and make new life where there was no life to begin with. Today, we've left these palm branches here on purpose. There was a point to all this, not just to make a mess. Today, um, 
we want these palm branches to be a symbol not only of welcoming Christ into our midst, but we also want these palm branches to be a symbol of sacrifice. And so as a symbol of sacrifice, we want you to begin to, uh, on your way out today, if you feel God leading you, to take one of these palm branches or a piece of one of these palm branches and to put it somewhere this week that reminds you to give yourself away, to entrust yourself to the Father's future, and to take a step of giving yourself away so that someone else can experience new life and resurrection. On Easter Sunday, we are going to have an incredible celebration of resurrection. And we would love other people to experience that celebration uh, in their own lives. We would love people to begin to experience um, resurrection in their own life. And so these palm branches are here to serve as a reminder to you that maybe God is calling you this week to go to a coworker and to say, I need to lay myself down and entrust this conversation to the Father so that something miraculous might actually be able to happen here. It might mean that you go to, the, to a coworker and say, hey, you know what? We've known each other for a long time. We've been friends for a long time, but there's something you need to know about me. I'm a Jesus follower. And guess what? I've experienced resurrection in my own life. There's something new that has happened within my own life. And you know what? I just can't stand here anymore until I invite you to come to church with me on Easter Sunday and experience that for yourself. Or maybe a palm branch would signify to you today that, that as you leave here and, and go about your week, that there's some kind of act of reconciliation that needs to take place between you and another person. And that a palm branch placed in a place where you're going to see it every day is a reminder to you to give yourself away so that God can do something miraculous, so that new life can emerge. These palm branches are here to remind us to get in the race. We are not a people who are just here to observe. We're going to sing in just a minute, and I'm going to dismiss this. And as you go, if God is calling you to, um, to lay down a branch, lay down one of these palm branches as a way to be able to lay down yourself, I would ask you to just come and tear a piece off. There's plenty to go around. There's plenty to go around. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. And after the song is finished, you are dismissed and you are free to go. Let's pray together.